So we're going to start in Matthew 5 and verse 38, if you want to follow along. Let's read. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Pastor Brett. Good morning, everyone. My name is Lane. I'm one of the pastors here. And this morning, we are continuing uh, in our series, Unpacking Jesus's teachings in the Sermon on the Mount. We are calling this series the Upside Down Kingdom because when it comes to the kind of kingdom that Jesus has inaugurated and the kind that he's bringing to earth, uh, it is going to be completely upside down and countercultural compared to the ways of this world. And that includes the way that we love. The way Jesus' followers love and who they love is going to be upside down when compared to the way our world chooses to love. And perhaps this is the most apparent in the passage that we just read here, that we are to love our enemies. This may be, in fact, one of the most difficult aspects of what Jesus asks of his followers. Now, if you're anything like me, if you grew up hearing this teaching or you've heard it before, you maybe thought, yeah, like Jesus wants me to love my enemies, but he doesn't want me to love people that are like really bad. You know, like there's a line, you know. I'm supposed to be nice to people if they're mean or disagree with me or have a bad day, but he doesn't want me to love, like, certain kinds of criminals, right? Like, he doesn't want me to actually care for people who are unjust and corrupt. He, he couldn't mean that. He doesn't mean that I should seek the prosperity and the flourishing of those who are actively against me. He couldn't mean that. He couldn't mean that I'm supposed to lay down my life in love for those who hate me. It's a nice sentiment to be nice to people who are having a bad day, but he couldn't mean that he wants me to sacrificially love evil people. Could he? Yeah, except the problem is that is exactly what he's asking. The idea of being a disciple means that I am becoming more and more like my teacher. And in this case, being a disciple of Jesus, we, as his disciples, are becoming more and more like him if we receive his teaching learning to live and to love more like he did. And our teacher happened to be someone who washed the feet of the people who betrayed him and abandoned him and denied him. And this is the teacher who ultimately died for the very people who were killing him. In Romans 5, it says that while we were still enemies of God, Christ died for us. And it's teachings like this where following Jesus can no longer be mistaken for something cute. 
This isn't about Christian bookstores, cheesy bumper stickers, or watching VeggieTales, right? It's not about that. Following Jesus, I mean, I love VeggieTales, but (laughs) following Jesus means that we are hoping to be transformed by his love. And make no mistake, when we allow ourselves to, to receive the love and the teachings of Jesus, it's a pathway to a kind of joy and peace and hope that we could not know apart from him. This is true, but the cost is great. In Matthew 16, he says, deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. As Jesus approached the crucifixion, he told his followers that they would need to eat of his flesh and drink of his blood, which was really weird for them to hear. It wasn't a call to cannibalism. It was a foreshadow of what it was going to cost to give us the kind of life, the kind of resurrection hope that we have now that it was going to cost, this gift was going to cost him, it was going to be the bloody and broken body and the betrayed and ridiculed heart of the God of the universe. That's what it was going to take. And most people couldn't really comprehend or accept what Jesus was saying. And so he turns this to his disciples and he says, are you guys going to, because a lot of people left him at that point. They said, cannibalism, we're out. And he turns to his disciples and says, are you going to leave me too? And they promised, Jesus, where else are we going to go? You alone hold the world's through eternal life. And they, they pledged that they're going to stick by him. But on the night that Jesus was betrayed, when he's praying in the garden, he just says, hey, guys, can you stay up with me while I pray? They couldn't even stay awake. And then when he was unjustly arrested and brought to trial before Pilate, everyone fled. A few of them stayed, including his mother, Mary, and John the Apostle. And they sat at the feet of Jesus while he hung on the cross, when he was stripped naked and tortured and ridiculed. They stayed with him as Jesus proved himself to be exactly who he said he was. He demonstrated his sacrificial love by dying even dying to take away the sins of those who were killing him. So friends, today we have a difficult teaching. And as we sit and we soak in the words of Jesus, much of what he asks of us in our limited human understanding, it's going to seem upside down. It's going to seem countercultural, and, and it, it doesn't make sense. And the temptation for us will be perhaps to turn away from this teaching because it's too much or to try to water it down to make it more palatable, to diminish it. But friends, I believe that as we behold behold the Savior of the world willingly and unjustly nailed to a cross, that the call to love our enemies, that this is as difficult as it appears to be. And to pick up this lesson and to receive it from the heart of Christ, it's going to cost us something. It's going to cost us something. But my invitation for us is let's not leave Jesus alone on the cross. Let's not abandon him to the suffering that he willingly endured. Let's sit at his feet, even when the teaching feels like it's too much, so that we can become more like him. Because as grotesque and as horrific and as horrible as this can be, it is because of Christ's unfathomable upside-down radical love that we now have the gift of resurrection life. 
the fullness of joy, the fullness of peace, and the fullness of unwavering hope that we could not have without him. And Jesus is so patient with us. He's so patient. As his disciples messed things up and stumbled along the way, he never gave up on them. He stuck with them. He knows that for us, transformation takes time. And in the middle of that process, we do not need to have all the answers. I think especially when it comes to this teaching, there is a reflex in many of us to bring up all of the objections when it comes to loving our enemies. This teaching, it, it has, it's created all kinds of ripples of debate and strife within Christian communities, specifically around ethics, right? We have all these debates around things like just war or pacifism or self-defense and nonviolence and, and even suing people. These are ethical conundrums that have erupted in the church over this teaching. And I just want to say, it's been around for thousands of years, these conversations, and they're not going away today because Lane gives a 35-minute sermon. That's not going to happen. For many of us, we... I can't promise that we're going to have, walk away with better answers. But here's what I will say. For many of us, we're often a little overconfident and self-assured on what we think Jesus means or doesn't mean when he says to love our enemies. The temptation for us is to oversimplify this. And it's hard because here's the thing. It's not theoretical, right? It's not theoretical. This has real-world implications on how we choose to live. And those of us who have experienced violence, who have experienced abuse, who have seen combat, this is not so cut and dry. So in no way is this conversation supposed to be easy, especially now as we witness the horrors of terrorism and violence and war taking place in the Middle East. There are images and videos and news headlines and stories that are flooding the internet, and there are people responding to those stories with all horrible versions of humanity, with misconceptions and uncompassionate opinions and misinformation and ignorance. Amidst all this, this conversation gets, gets more difficult, but there is an invitation for us as we unpack this teaching Let's be open to reevaluating our assumptions. Sometimes asking these sort of difficult questions feels like we're turning over a really big rock. And when we turn it over, we're afraid of what's going to be under there. And I just want you to know that as we turn over this rock, we do it together. We do it together in community and acceptance and with patience. And Jesus is doing it with us. He's going to help us deal with it. I suppose that those of us who do this work today of turning over this rock and asking the big hard questions, we're not going to walk away with all the answers, but perhaps the Holy Spirit will rise in us better questions. So today we're going to unpack this passage. We'll talk about its cultural implications and unpack what it might mean for us today. And we'll explore what it looks like for us to move from fear and into love, loving our enemies. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we just ask that you would fill this room. That your presence and your peace would guide us to all wisdom and compassion and wholeness. In Christ Jesus, as we behold your love on the cross, we ask that you would teach us. Would you show us how to be more like you? In your name we pray. Amen. All right, so this first section of the passage 
we see uh, Jesus giving his disciples this ethic of non-retaliation. Basically, when people do bad things to you, don't uh, do bad things back to them. Don't fight back. And he brings up these illustrations that seem strange to us, but they carried a really deep and obvious uh, significance to, to them at the time. This uh, phrase, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, is directly out of the Levitical laws in the Old Testament, specifically in chapter 24. And the way it worked in ancient Israel is that if somebody wronged me, I was not allowed to enact retribution on my own. I could not take justice in my own hands. So I had to take this, this wrongdoing that was, that was done against me and take it to the court. And I asked that I had to have a witness. And if that witness could corroborate my story, then the repayment for that crime needed to be equal of what happened. They would have to take their grievance to the court, and the punishment needed to be proportionate to the offense. Hence the phrase, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. And most biblical scholars agree that this law was designed first and foremost to mitigate retaliation, like people doing it themselves, and to keep conflicts from escalating. That it was more about keeping things from escalating than it was about enforcing punishment. Basically, it was there to keep people from taking the law into their own hands with their own version of biased justice, which isn't always fair, right? Did anybody grow up watching the Power Rangers? Proud, come on, hands. Power Rangers, anybody? Or their kids watched it? You've heard the word Power Rangers somewhere. Okay, great. All right, I'm going to show you a picture. So I grew up watching the Power Rangers, and uh, this is Jaina and I and when we were in college. It is what it is. It's, it's, it happened, okay? So this is for October, harvest thing, whatever. Um, please take it down now. Okay, so we... I love the Power Rangers, and what's interesting about the Power Rangers is this. So if you don't know how this works, Power Rangers are these teenagers with attitude that are selected by this alien Zordon to defend the Earth, right? Stick with me. So <laughs> they had these power suits that gave them super strength and all this stuff, right? Now, they were allowed to fight evil, but they were not allowed to escalate the conflict. So if the evil witch Rita were to send putties, which are her little goons, to go and fight, they could fight the goons, in their power suits, one-to-one. But Power Rangers also had these really cool things called Zords. Remember this? Giant robots that looked like dinosaurs. Pretty cool. They could use these things to fight evil. However, they had to wait until the enemy escalated the conflict. So they were not allowed to use their Zords to fight the putties. They had to wait until Rita would send this giant monster to attack the city before they could use their Zords. Interesting. So there's a philosophy of non-escalation happening right here in Power Rangers. Thanks, guys. Um, this is what this is for. The, the illustration was like over someone's head. That's fine. That's fine. We'll keep going. The law was there to keep matters from escalating because we humans have a way of escalating conflict, don't we? Rarely does an argument start as a screaming match, but it can get there right? But not for you guys, because you guys are holy and better than that. But it can get there, because you feel like you need to take a little more ground than the other person did. And then they feel like they can take a little more ground than they did. And then it, it crescendos into this explosion. I mean, you realize, like, what are we even yelling about anymore? There's peanut butter in the cupboard. Why are we yelling, right? So when Jesus references this law on the surface, it seems like he's contradicting the law by instructing his followers not to repay an evil person. But we have to remember that Jesus said at the beginning of this sermon, I am the fulfillment of the law. I have not come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. 
Because you see, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, in this law, a person was, was within his or her rights to demand payment for the offense, but they were not required to ask it. So this challenge of Jesus, it forces me to sit with a bigger question. Just because something is permissible doesn't mean that it's beneficial. Although we may at times have a right to retaliate, does that mean that I should? Does it mean that the world would benefit if I did? And what would happen then if I had a right to retaliate but then chose not to hold their offense against them? Then we move beyond something called fairness and we move towards something better. We move towards grace. Sounds a lot like Jesus, doesn't it? Someone else who did not choose to hold our offenses against us. See, Jesus is the kind of God that if somebody repents and turns away from their sin and comes to him, he doesn't hold their sins against them. And it's a good thing because the cost of my sin is a debt that's accrued too much interest and I could never repay it. I am outside of my power to make up for what I have done wrong. Thus is the same with humanity. So Jesus forgives our debt. Jesus forgives us, and he offers us grace. We have something much more beautiful than fairness with Jesus. We have reconciliation. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul writes, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and see, the new has come. Everything is from God, who has reconciled us to himself through Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed and he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. See, our version of justice usually deals with fairness, right? Our inner child feels wrong when things aren't fair, right? But God's justice has nothing to do with fairness. God's not trying to make things fair, he's trying to make them right. And that is something altogether different. What Jesus offers us in the face of offense is forgiveness and grace. Because more than getting what he's owed, what he wants is not what he's owed. He wants reconciliation with us. Right? Like if my son were to grow up and like insult me and spit in my face and embezzle money from me and steal my car. I know, horrible things. But if that happened... I could be repaid and compensated for my losses. I could get my money back. I could have my car repossessed, but all of that could go to the pit of hell for all I care if I can't be with my son. What I want more than anything is not to be compensated. I want to be with my son. That is a small glimpse of how our Heavenly Father feels about you and me. He's a just God. But true justice is not about compensation. It's about reconciliation. See, what our legal system offers you and me is not truly justice. It's just compensation. If someone murders somebody that I love, I can put them away in jail. I can be compensated financially for my loss. But none of that will truly be justice. None of it will really be fair. True justice can only be brought about through forgiveness and grace in this upside-down economy that we call Christ's kingdom. True justice leads to reconciliation.
Then Jesus, in the teaching, he offers this example of someone slapping you across the face. In the way that it's described on the right cheek, if someone were right-handed, it would be a backhanded slap across the face, which would be considered pretty much the most extreme insult in this culture. It was a severe sign of disrespect. And he tells his followers, if somebody does that to you, offer them the other cheek. Now, it's been argued that what this meant was, if they slap you with disrespect, you turn to them the other cheek in defiance to show them that they can't disrespect you like that. And they have to face you on equal terms. I can see a case for this. But in my opinion, based on the context of the surrounding passages, this theory leaves out the heart of the teaching. It is true that in that instance, turning my face towards my attacker would demonstrate that my dignity is not in your hands. I'm a child of God, and no gesture of disrespect from a man could ever take that away from me. Yes and amen, absolutely. But the main thrust of these teachings doesn't appear to be Jesus showing them, hey, here's how you put it to the people that are trying to, to, to disrespect you. Here's how you show them that, that they need to respect you. In fact, it transitions in this part of the teaching from just not retaliating against people who do bad things to you, but now actually serving them and loving them and praying for them. He says that if someone wants to sue you and take your shirt, give them your coat also. Our English translation uses the word shirt and coat, but really when we say coat, this word would be more like a tunic. And tunics, the outerwear of the first century Palestinian, it was very expensive, and they'd maybe own one or two of these if they were really well off. And it would double as a blanket for those who needed to warn themselves at night. It was a high-grade fabric, a really big deal. So here we see hyperbole in this literary device. I really don't think what Jesus means is if someone says, uh, like sues you and takes your car, give them your house too. Actually, what I think this is is a statement of trust and a statement on what we value. Because handing over your tunic would be a crippling blow financially. But as we'll read in a few weeks, Jesus is inviting his followers into a new level of trusting God when it comes to his provision. So when the world tries to take something from me, it can have whatever it wants because that's not where my treasure is. You can't take anything away from me if I don't value it more than I value the kingdom. You see what I'm saying? So Jesus is saying, if someone wants to sue you and take your stuff, let them have it. Because the kingdom is about something that is immaterial, that the world cannot take away. Then he says, if someone forces you to go with them one mile, go with them two miles. This is referencing a policy that existed during Roman rule. If a Roman official or a soldier uh, wanted labor or services, he could ask this of any citizen of a conquered land, and they would be legally obliged to do so. So if I'm a Roman official, I'm coming into town, and I don't, or I'm a soldier, I don't feel like carrying my pack anymore. I could pick you out of a crowd and say, you, carry my backpack all the way to my destination, and you'd be legally obliged to do so. This was quite a flex of superiority and power and subjugation from the Romans. And most of Jesus' disciples would have been outraged by this, especially the zealots. The zealots were people that were actively organizing and seeking the demise of the Roman Empire. And now Jesus is telling them, not only do I not repay people who wrong me like my neighbors and people who are within the Levitical laws, now you're telling me when an enemy wants this service from me that I'm supposed to oblige them? Are you kidding me? See, loving your neighbor, that was a command in Leviticus 19. But never did it say love your enemies. We see precedents for this in the Old Testament, like, you know, be kind to the immigrants and the foreigners among you and things like this. But here's the thing. Jesus not only fulfills the law, he goes beyond it. 
He seeks something more than fairness. He seeks reconciliation. So not only are we going to love our neighbors this way, you're going to love your enemies too. Remember, while we were still the enemies of God, Christ died for you. Which means Christ died for everyone. Like, everyone. A few weeks ago, we showed some images of Jesus washing people's feet, lots of different people's feet. Some of those images are hard for us to see for some reason. We don't like the idea that Jesus could love someone else that I hate or someone else that hates me as fiercely as he loves me. We don't like that. It makes us feel uncomfortable. But behind every great evil in the world, there are people. Think about these Roman soldiers, for example, right? If they were part of a conquered territory, they were brought up in this Roman culture. They, they were fed this narrative their whole life. They've been deceived into believing the Roman gospel, which was Pax Romana, which basically means Roman peace. And this is peace by the sword. They saw it as their duty to civilize the world around them through violence if necessary. And a lot of these soldiers are probably just doing what they feel like is the best good for the world. They've been convinced that that's the story. And they're just following orders, right? Some of the biggest atrocities in the world have happened through this. People just doing what they're told because they think it's right. Nazi Germany, child soldiers in Uganda. Behind every evil thing in the world, there are human beings like you and me. And the way of vengeance carries no hope for them. But God, his justice, carries the hope of reconciliation for all people. Christians historically have known how to see it this way. One of the earliest martyrs, one of the most famous early martyrs, Polycarp, he was a disciple of the Apostle John. He, uh, he was uh, an elderly man when he was arrested by the Romans. And the guards came to his house, and uh, he wasn't running. And they came in, and they were surprised at this man's gentle spirit and his humility. And he served them a meal. And he said, come, make yourself comfortable, eat whatever you'd like. Can you just wait for a moment while I pray? And while Polycarp knelt and prayed, these Roman soldiers listened to this man talk to his God and prepare to meet him. And they pleaded with him. They said, can you just deny Christ? We don't want to hand you over to be executed. Just deny Christ. And he wouldn't. And they brought him to the arena, and there they tried to burn him alive. Apparently they weren't able to, and they had to stab him. But he was executed for his beliefs. Imagine the impact that his humility and kindness had on the hearts and minds of those Roman soldiers. Imagine how you'd have to rethink everything if the person you were told was an enemy of the state made you a meal and prayed for you. Revenge doesn't heal wounds. It just causes them in others. If we want something different, we have to take on the teachings of Jesus seriously. I did a Spotify throwback recently, and I was listening to some music that I listened to like in middle school and high school, you know? And this band Switchfoot came up. You guys remember Switchfoot? So they had this song called Meant to Live that got pretty popular, right? And there's a line that said one time in the bridge, we want more than the wars of our fathers. Eighth grade Lane did not understand the significance of this line. 
But the way of Jesus is to transcend this cycle of revenge and vengeance. The only way to move beyond the wars of our fathers is to be like Jesus, to extend forgiveness. The only end to vengeance is forgiveness. Now listen, what I'm not preaching is kind of a doormat theology where we just let people walk all over us for no reason. That's not what I'm teaching. I'm not saying that you shouldn't run from someone or defend yourself if you're being attacked. I'm not saying that you shouldn't stand up for someone who's being bullied. I'm not saying that people should stay with their abusive spouses. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is this ethic teaches us that we don't rely on ourselves for justice. We rely on God. He, he offers this, this analogy, or this, this, uh, this metaphor, he says that, or image, there it is, that he sends his son to rise on the evil and the good, that he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And there's a really profound piece of wisdom here. So if we look at the, lit- the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, we have the Proverbs, right? The Proverbs basically go like this. You do good things and honor God, good things will happen to you. You do bad things and dishonor God, bad things will happen to you. That's the Proverbs. And then you have the book of Job where there's a man who honors God and does all the good things, and the worst things happen to him. And then you have Ecclesiastes that wrestles with this and says, yeah, this is how things should work, but often they don't, and what do we do when they don't? See, here's the thing. We are not always going to have good answers. We're not always going to be able to make sense of why bad things happen to good people and why good things happen to bad people, why justice seems to be out of control, and we're going to want to control justice but I am not the judge of the living and the dead. And I'm glad. Because my version of justice would fall very short of his. So I have to trust him with the outcomes. Now also, hear me, this does not mean that we don't fight injustice. We do fight injustice. Jesus fought injustice all the time, but his enemy was never the person. His enemy was always the injustice. Jesus would cast out the demons living inside of a person, but he'd embrace the person. You see the difference? The people of the kingdom of God are supposed to take stands against evil and to stand for people. One person who embodied this principle exceptionally well was Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. When Dr. King was at a book signing in Harlem, there was a woman who came up to him and plunged a letter opener into his chest trying to kill him. And while Dr. King was in the hospital, remember, he was a huge advocate for nonviolent resistance, and while he was there, uh, a reporter was asking him about the incident, and he said this regarding the woman. He said, I felt no ill will towards her, and I know that thoughtful people will do all in their power to see that she gets the help she apparently needs if she is to become a free and constructive member of society. Now listen, I don't know about you, (laughs) but if someone's stabbing me in the lung... (laughs) Those words are going to be hard to get out. But it turns out this woman was actually diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. She was not in a good state of mind when she stabbed him. Now, he could have made assumptions. He could have used this moment to capitalize on the narrative, to reveal the violence of white supremacy, but he didn't. Instead, he chose to set an example of what it looks like to move beyond retribution and to move towards reconciliation. His kindness unsettled the whole story. Kindness confounds the evil in others. Kindness confounds the evil in others. Paul writes in Romans 2 that it's actually God's kindness 
which has led us to repentance, right? So we're asked to love our enemies, but to love our enemies, does this mean that we need to feel warm fuzzies for people that are evil? I don't think so. I, I, I haven't been able to accomplish that in my life, to feel warm fuzzies towards really terrible people who are enacting really evil things. But the word for love here is agape. And agape love, we have one word for love in English. There are many in Greek and in Hebrew. The word for agape, this is a love that is associated only with God, the way that God loves. And the way that God loves transcends the way that I could ever love in ways that are impossible for me to love. He is patient in the way that he loves. His love is long-suffering and sacrificial, and God wants to reconcile all people to himself. So he loves in a way which aims to do that. When we agape, love like this, we choose to see everyone, even our enemies, as people whom God desires to bring home because they are his children. Love is choosing to regard a person as someone God desires to bring home. And it's too big. It is too big for you and I to do without God. There was a woman uh, named Corey Tenboom. She was a Jew uh, who lost her family during the Holocaust in an internment camp. She's a Christian. She used to do these lectures uh, talking about grace and forgiveness, doing these talks. And at one of these talks, a man walked up to her and shook her hand and introduced himself as one of the Nazi guards at the camp where her family was killed. And it was at that moment she realized that everything that she had been teaching about forgiveness and grace was impossible for her in that moment. And the way she talks about it, she says, I needed God to love through me because I was incapable of doing it myself. Dr. King has this quote, he said this, we must develop and maintain the capacity to forgive. He who is devoid of the power to forgive is devoid of the power to love. There is some good in the worst of us and some evil in the best of us. When we discover this, we are less prone to hate our enemies. Jesus ends this section of the teaching with this call that looks crazy to us. He says, be perfect as my heavenly Father is perfect. Now, this word perfect is actually, it's a Greek word teleos, which really means being whole, being complete, being mature. So he's saying, come into the maturity and wholeness of God by loving your enemies. Because that kind of love, the love that can love even an enemy, is perfect. And this is what Jesus asks of you and me, to be complete and mature in our love, loving everyone. Now, I realize this doesn't answer all of our questions, particularly concerning things like the ethics of war and, and self-defense, but like what I said at the beginning of all this, we're not going to walk away with all of our questions answered, but hopefully within us, the Holy Spirit is giving us better questions. We do not have the strength apart from the Spirit to do this. It's not easy. And this is why Jesus gave us the cross, to demonstrate for himself, for us, just how far he was willing to go. This is everything. And I want you to take a moment. If you um, have yet to declare Jesus as Lord in your life, I'm so glad that you're here. And for the moment, I want you to just hold these elements in your hand and reflect on them. 
this practice is reserved for those who call Jesus Lord. And if you're ever ready to make that decision, we're here to support you and pray for you in that. But as you hold these elements, friends, let's not let it become rote ritual. When we hold the bread, when we look at the cup, we're meant to do so as we remember what Christ has done. That he broke his body. That he was lashed 39 times with a cat of nine tails. That he was beaten and spit on. That he wore a crown of thorns. That he spilled his blood. That he was beat unrecognizable because he could demonstrate how perfect his love was. That he would die even for the people who had abandoned him, for the people who had betrayed him, and for the people who were killing him. That is how perfect his love was, how perfect his love is. And when we take of it, we remember that while we were still the enemies of God, he did this for us. And as we take it into ourselves, we receive the empowerment from Christ and from the Holy Spirit to then live that way for other people. So as you hold these elements, do so with a weight in your heart. This is a big deal. This is world-changing. This is kingdom-bringing. This is the love of Christ. On the night he was betrayed, he took bread and broke it, and he said, this is my body broken for you. Now eat and remember me. And in the same way, he took the cup, and he said, this is my blood in a new covenant shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We're going to end with a time of prayer and reflection. I'm going to throw some prayer points on the screen. You and Jesus need to have it out now. We've said some things, but again, what I say up here is less important than what Jesus speaks to you. Who is your enemy? Who is it? Is it more like a frustrating ally that you just gossip about sometimes? Is it somebody who is actually out to get you? Is it somebody who actively opposes you, who belittles you? Is it someone that you've never even met, but you feel the freedom to demonize? Who is it? Who is it when you think about Jesus washing their feet? It makes you cringe. And think, what, off, what prayer can I offer on their behalf to God? I think you'll find that when you start praying for people, it changes your heart for them. Because you're now actively contending for their well-being. And then what does it look like for you to embody Christ's love in this person's life? How do you begin to serve them and to care for them? Let's take a moment and pray and reflect.